Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, David Reich, Professor of Genetics at Harvard, talked to Clive Cookson, the FT's Science Editor, about how the genomic revolution is affecting paleontology and the study of human prehistory. This week, we hear from the founding executive director of a US initiative that brings civil society groups into a debate with tech companies about the impact of AI-based technology on our societies. These companies are interested in helping distribute the benefits of this technology as widely as possible. And they also recognize, as do much of the other community members involved in the partnership, that that's not going to necessarily happen by itself. Market forces and incentives are not necessarily aligned with that outcome. I think there's general consensus around that. And if we're going to fashion the future in which we all want to live, we're going to have to do it fairly deliberately. That's the voice of Terra Alliance, who runs the Partnership on AI, founded by Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, IBM and Microsoft. She came into the studio to talk to me about how the non-profit organization is seeking to promote the benefits of machine intelligence. Welcome, Terra. Can you tell us what does Partnership on AI do? Thank you, John. The Partnership on AI was established in 2016 by the directors of AI research at six of some of the largest tech companies in the market. So we were established by Apple, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, Microsoft, and Google DeepMind. And really, I think the genesis of the partnership arose out of this collective interest that these parties had in identifying concerns, opportunities, and challenges related to the development of machine intelligence and working together to concertedly try to develop solutions. It's quite a thing to have these highly competitive companies all coming together in the same organization. Does that make it a bit of a challenge for you to herd all these cats? Actually, I think what's most interesting is that they didn't stop there. They added six nonprofit board directors to the six for-profit entities that were situated on the board. And then they turned the whole thing into a multi-stakeholder initiative, which currently comprises over 50 member organizations. And our partners span civil society organizations and other types of nonprofit institutions, academic institutions and laboratories, and other for-profit technology companies. So all taken together, this multi-stakeholder collective is a very complex and diverse spectrum to navigate. And I think that is one of the superpowers and largest challenges of the work that the partnership so that is That must approaching. make your job all the more challenging. <laughs> but, um, it does. <laughs> now, some extraordinary claims are made for the impact of AI. I mean, some people compare it to the impact of fire or electricity. I think Anthony Lewandowski even compared it to God at one time. Can you give us your quick take? How significant is the artificial intelligence revolution? I I'm biased, obviously, but I think it's extremely significant. I think that the constellation of technologies that comprise what we refer to today as artificial intelligence will revolutionize most areas of current human life and most industries and sectors. And that is why I'm doing what I'm doing today. I really do deeply believe that there's a huge imperative that we get this right and we develop things responsibly and also leverage whatever opportunities we can to use AI applied to global challenges so that we can help solve some of humanity's most pressing issues, which currently we don't maybe have technology to approach. Now, there have been some pretty wild cycles in expectation and disappointment since the term artificial intelligence was first coined. And we've had several previous AI winters. Are we just at the peak of expectations at the moment and we're going to come down into a trough of disappointment? (laughs) 
Well, I hope not, because then the, the Partnership on Artificial Intelligence will have to find a new name, I think. <laughs> but, you know, you, I think you're absolutely right that there has been this sort of fluctuation in at least technology advancement in the field. And I'm actually fairly optimistic that we will continue to see a sort of rise, maybe not in interest. We might actually have reached the peak of the hype cycle, potentially from a public interest perspective, but I do think that we'll continue to see these technologies advance and develop, and frankly, also accompanying disciplines and technology areas as well. So I don't think that there's any chance of AI dying anytime soon or sputtering out in the next several year period. I really do think that these issues will continue to be relevant and increasingly sort of be intertangled with adjacent technology areas. What are the main areas you focus on at the partnership? We have six priority areas of focus as an organization, and they are fairly wide ranging, but the six of them include safety critical artificial intelligence, fairness, accountability, and transparency in AI, AI, labor, and the economy, collaborations between humans and AI systems, social and societal influences of AI, and AI and social good. And all those areas comprise the issue space determined by the board upon the founding of the organization that the partnership will endeavor to grapple with and think about. And some of our early work has started in the establishment of working groups. So the first three that I named actually related to labor and the economy, fairness, accountability, and transparency, and safety critical artificial intelligence are those issues which we're diving into first. And to what extent was the partnership formed because of a recognition that the industry has to lead the debate on a lot of this stuff? I mean, there are a lot of public fears about the use of AI. And I was at a conference a while back where people were making the comparison with the debate about genetically modified food, Mm -hmm. that the scientists lost control of the debate in a way. And certainly in Europe, at least, there was a big public backlash based from the scientific point of view on ignorance. Do you think that's a danger with AI as well? Yeah, the GMO parallel actually, I think, is a fairly interesting one and likely very relevant in this case as well. I think that there's a huge potentiality of the public misunderstanding and also the policymaking space misunderstanding the ways in which these technologies might have an impact on people in society. It's very true that there seems to be an outsized impact that the private sector has right now in AI research and development. I previously worked on policy issues from the Obama administration in the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House there. And one of the most interesting things that we found was that at the time, 2015, 2016, the U.S. government, at least for its part, was funding AI research and development at about one-eighth the rate of the private sector in the United States. Just to state that fact and and say nothing else about it would probably be oversimplifying the issue, but it is a fairly clear measurement, investments a fairly clear measurement of impact and influence, obviously. And I think it's very true that it's important that these companies come out ahead and be leading on questions related to the influence of these technologies and the ways in which they should be responsibly developed and deployed. Now, we've just had a very good example of the gulf between technology and politics with Mark Zuckerberg's testimony in Congress in which pretty much the solution to every problem, as far as I could tell, was uh, AI that was going to be helping to combat fake news or hate speech or whatever. But it was also striking the extent to which a lot of congressmen grappled with even basic understanding of a lot of the technology that Facebook is using. So as someone who has spanned both the worlds of technology and politics, what do you think we can do to bring those two worlds closer together so that we have a proper, more informed dialogue between them? 
It's a really important question. And this was something we gave a lot of thought to back in the Obama administration as well. That administration was the first one to include a U.S. chief technology officer at a cabinet level position in the United States. We had an office of science technology policy that was the largest, I think, in U.S. history and the longest running science advisor to the president in the form of Dr. Holdren, who was at the time the director of the office of science and technology policy. And we brought a lot of techies into government in the course of the eight years of that administration. And I think it had a huge impact on the way in which we started thinking about policy issues, at least from the executive branch. Part of that work also included the establishment of something called the U.S. Digital Service, which other countries have parallels to, including here in the U.K. And a lot of work was done to sort of upgrade the intelligence and knowledge of the U.S. government on technical issues generally. But it's not enough to stop there. I think there's obviously a huge need to better educate policymakers at every level of policymaking, local, state, national or international. And I think that part of that just means kind of elevating the priority of technology in the policy ecosystem generally as well. It's become very clear, I think, to many people in recent years that technology policy touches almost all areas of policy now, healthcare policy, economic policy, all sorts of other domain-specific policy areas, which previously didn't necessarily need expertise of a technical manner. And I think it's really important that organizations like the partnership actually have a role to play in directly educating policymakers and other constituencies. Who- and how are you doing that? Well, it's actually a primary aspect of our mission to advance public understanding around AI and its impact on people and society. So because we're such a young organization, we haven't had a huge opportunity to do a lot of public outreach yet, but it's definitely on the docket for us in the near term future. And one thing that we're very committed to, in addition to that, is in just being a resource that can be called upon by policymaking bodies or other constituencies who have interest in just learning more about the state of the art and technology, the impacts that it might have from a multidisciplinary perspective. Okay. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Let's plunge into some of the issues surrounding AI. One is algorithmic bias and the fear that we just bake in prejudices in society into some of the algorithms that we use, whether it's sentencing decisions in the criminal justice system or just more generally for a lot of bank loans or other decisions. How do you think we can best combat algorithmic bias? That's a hard question, but it's a really important one. Bias stems, I think, in the AI issue space from several different sources, right? There's bias in the data sources upon which we train some of these platforms, and that is a more systemic problem. There's also bias potentially in the field itself, which is extremely homogenous right now, at least in the technical community. And that's also a fundamental problem. And then there's the sort of question of bias around the production element of creating technical platforms, especially with that second concern in mind, given the homogeneity of the teams that are generally working on some of these things. 
And so I think there needs to be sort of a full stack approach to driving solutions on the bias question and also a raising of consciousness about this issue, too. You know, I think that there's generally speaking been a recent awakening related to the potential harms of algorithmic bias and systems that might not even necessarily be AI right now. But in the future, if turned into AI platforms, which have a sort of massively asymmetric effect, and an amplifying effect on social systems and decision-making could be cause for some pretty intense concern. So I think that that consciousness raising that I talked about needs to happen, again, at a policymaking level. It also needs to happen within the developer community. And also advocates and civil society organizations have a part to play here in making sure that there's an accountability structure when policy can't play a part. Now, you're talking about the dangers that come from the homogeneity of the industry. And I saw you quoted the other day as saying that only 18% of computer science graduates in the US are women. And the lack of, kind of ethnic diversity as well amongst the leadership of some of these organizations is also uh, pretty stark. What can be done to address that? Well, again, it also has to be a sort of holistic approach, I think. The diversity inclusion question, especially as it relates to AI, implicates a lot of different systems and structures that have been problematic for a very long time, right? So I think there's a question of the educational system and what we do to sort of enhance what has traditionally been referred to as the pipeline of talent that moves into industry and academia and other sectors. There's also a question of retaining talent. And this is especially true of industry where it's frequently seen that once women get to a certain place within industrial research organizations or corporations, it's actually quite hard to retain them in certain cases, especially as personnel policies related to maternity and paternity leave and so on and so forth have come into play. And then there's the question, too, of making sure that we are sponsoring and fostering and storytelling in appropriate ways about the way in which leadership in this field is developed and celebrated, right? So there's an intense need, I think, for us to better recognize and celebrate contributions of more diverse voices in the creation of technology. Historically, that has definitely been an issue in the erasure of some of these contributions from certain demographics in the development of technology platforms. And and I think it's very worthwhile us considering how best we ameliorate that dynamic and also push to make sure that we're really holding up female leaders in the field. Are you hopeful that it's going to change as fast as it needs to? I am hopeful, but I'm not optimistic about that being the case unless much more is done to sort of solve some of these problems. One of the other issues is As we're talking about, it's a highly competitive field. There are lots of companies who are wanting to exploit the maximum commercial advantage from a lot of these new systems. One area we've seen is self-driving cars, where we have a lot of companies now piling into this area. And there have been concerns that some companies in particular are putting cars onto the road, which have not been adequately tested and are unsafe. How can society best regulate or ensure that This is not a big problem, which leads to a public backlash against the whole use of driverless car technology. The application of self-driving vehicles is a really interesting example, I think, especially as it relates to policymaking. You know, it's funny, I was actually reflecting on this the other day, realizing that the DARPA Grand Challenge, the Urban Challenge was just over 10 years ago. The original one was just under 15 years ago. And back then, there were buggies rolling off paths in the desert, unable to (laughs) do anything that they were originally programmed, intended to do. And we've come just incredibly far in that time span. 
And at the same time, government is ill-equipped, I think, to a certain extent to deal with the pace of this technological innovation, right? So this goes back to your earlier point around this gap that kind of persists between developers and policymakers to a certain extent, how we better bridge that. And I think part of the answer is in revising the policymaking infrastructure such that it can be more agile and responsive to some of these developments. You know, secondary question probably coming after that is, well, how do we do that? And I think, again, it's really complicated, probably an answer far exceeding the time that we have in this podcast. But I think in general, a lot of that has to do with that translation issue, right? And making sure that policymakers are better aware of the state of the field and where it might be moving and the extent to which we need to focus on certain regulatory interventions in order to make sure that innovation isn't impeded, but people are also kept safe. I also think it's true that part of this innovation will come in us realizing that there has to be a sort of community of practice built in industry, which allows these companies creating these technology platforms to come together and really kind of mutually understand how best to approach things like technical standards and best practices. And is that happening already? To a certain extent, I think it is. Organizations like the partnership, I think, have the potentiality of approaching some of those issues. We don't have any self-driving vehicle companies involved in our partners right now, but I think that the hope would likely be in the future that we tackle some of these challenges. Right. Now, several of the guests we've had on Tectonic have given us some pretty varied views on the impact of technology on job creation or job destruction. Now, you were instrumental in producing a kind of landmark report for the White House on the impact of artificial intelligence. Where do you stand in this debate? Is AI going to be a net benefit in terms of job creation or is it going to result in more job losses, do you think? I think that it's a little hard to tell from where we're sitting right now. But what we'll likely end up seeing is tremendous growth in new jobs that we're just not capable of anticipating being created at this point and new skills, which AI technology specifically will generate. And at the same time, we'll see a sort of degradation of existing jobs and particularly, I think, existing skills within those jobs, which technology will sort of intercede and overtake. And I think it's still an open question, frankly. I mean, there's been a lot of interesting recent research done in the field approaching questions related to the labor market impacts of AI-based automation and I think a lot of those studies have actually done a lot to parse these questions and make them a little bit more nuanced than they have been in the past, which I think is an interesting and positive direction. But one of the things that's still widely recognized is that there's a dearth of data in the field that really will help us figure out the timescale at which some of these developments will take place and the extent to which some of these replacements in certain skills or job functions might also take place. So that's another issue area that the partnership is interested in tackling. And I think a principal interest that we have there within the partner community that we've established is in helping flush out some of these open questions in the field and really start providing some further data to helping us get to a place where we can start answering some of the more normatively oriented questions. There was an interesting report that's just come out from the Asian Development Bank where they were looking at automation more generally, not just AI, but were suggesting that it had led to net job creations across developing Asia because it has increased productivity, led to faster economic growth and higher demand, and that has created new jobs, although it has as well led to kind of job losses in the field of automation of a particular industrial products or whatever. But one of the main points they make is that technology in general and AI in particular can enhance a lot of job roles, that it's undoubtedly, as you're saying, going to change the nature of them, but it can also augment the productivity of individuals in jobs. Is that right, do you think? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And especially in certain sectors. I think what we have seen in recent research, in addition to the study that you described, is also an enhanced understanding of the fact that while replacing certain functions within jobs that are currently on the market, AI will allow people to move from areas of work that are what we refer to in the robotics community as dull, dangerous, or dirty, the three Ds, and into work that is more enjoyable and interesting and stimulating. And we've started to see that in the financial services sector and some other white collar sectors, I think. But increasingly, I think that will also spread to other sort of job sectors as well. And the other point I just want to touch on, which you mentioned, was this interesting idea around the fact that these fractures and transitions and enhancements will take place at varying rates and to different degrees in different types of markets, right? So uh, another interesting thing that the partnership is very conscious of and interested in drawing out in the work that we do is this understanding that there are geographical or jurisdictional differences in some of the impacts that AI will have, especially as it relates to automation in the labor market and cultural differences as well, which influence some of these questions. So for example, in Japan, where they have a labor force, which is suffering right now from a lack of laborers, frankly, because of demographic dynamics. They are very interested in having automation, you know, incorporated as quickly as possible in most sectors of their economy so that they can augment the interests and needs that they have there. Whereas in the United States, you notice a sort of widespread panic spreading across the country related to potential automation impacts. And some of that has to do with public discourse and the way in which the media promulgates narratives around some of these things. But a lot of it also has to do with culture. And it's interesting to kind of think about the way in which we might approach policy making as a result of that. I was in Japan recently and talked to some roboticists on exactly this issue. And I mean, I think you're right. There is a huge cultural difference between Japan and America, in particular on these issues, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Could we also touch on the issue of economic inequality? I mean, it's quite striking that your six founding corporate members, anyway, have enormous power in the field of AI. Do you think that they are going to be the ones who run with the benefits of AI and are going to accrue all of the benefits? Or do you think it is more of a democratizing technology and that smaller startup companies are going to benefit from the use of AI as well? I think AI has tremendous potentiality of being extremely democratizing. And this is actually an issue that really I think gets to sort of the core of the motivation of the partnership on AI. Really, I think these companies are interested in helping distribute the benefits of this technology as widely as possible. And they also recognize as do much of the other community members involved in the partnership, that that's not going to necessarily happen by itself. Market forces and incentives are not necessarily aligned with that outcome. I think there's general consensus around that. And if we're going to fashion the future in which we all want to live, we're going to have to do it fairly deliberately. So, you know, I think that there is high potentiality of this technology providing higher capacity to smaller organizations and companies. But, you know, we'll have to be conscious about making sure that that outcome is actually delivered. One of the ways of democratizing that economic benefit you're talking about would be for a broader sharing of data, which is obviously such a critical element in the success of smart algorithms. Do you see that happening? Is a debate beginning in America on how data that has been harvested by a lot of these big companies can be used to stimulate innovation? 
I think that that conversation is absolutely starting to happen. You know, I personally speaking, I'm very, very interested in this idea of the creation of a sort of data commons, which allows for organizations of all sorts, governments, private sector entities, et cetera, to tap into training data sources and all sorts of other things that data could be Can used for. Can you explain for. a bit more? How, what is your concept of a data commons? I don't have a very mature one at the moment, but I think the idea would be, and this has already started to happen, actually, to a certain extent. We have a lot of government organizations all over the world that have done quite a bit to open data sources that are state-owned and state-curated. And the opening of that data actually does a tremendous amount, I think, to spur innovation in the private sector and in academia, where it can be leveraged against all sorts of interesting challenges and questions that the government itself might not necessarily have the bandwidth to work on. And I think expanding that notion to the private sector to a certain degree and in recognition of the fact that there's data out there that doesn't necessarily need to be kept proprietary, that can be used for all sorts of interesting applications and inferences, is something that increasingly become more relevant as AI itself becomes more relevant. Final question. AI is being used in very different ways in different parts of the world and thinking particularly of China, which is developing an extraordinary tech ecosystem. Do you think the conversations that you're having are taking place on a global level now, or are we going to see marked regional differences in those narratives about technology and AI in particular? I actually do think that these discussions are being hosted on a global scale. Again, organizations like the Partnership and actually many other organizations working within the AI ecosystem, whether standards bodies or professional associations or otherwise, have taken a concerted interest in bridging the gap between different geographies, jurisdictions, professional communities, and academic institutions, and on a global scale. And, you know, I've done a fair amount of traveling, especially since starting this job, and recently went to Beijing just a few weeks ago, and had some really very interesting conversations there with the academic AI community in particular, and the AI research community. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of common interest in the opportunities and challenges associated with artificial intelligence. And these are human commonalities, you know, interest in ethics, interest in the way in which these AI technologies will interplay with questions of civil liberties and human rights, interest in better understanding and measuring the pace of technology development interest in sort of galvanizing the policy ecosystem around some of these questions in productive and useful ways. I think these are all interests that almost everywhere I go, I hear people talking about. So I'm very optimistic, actually, that there really is a sort of global community emerging around some of these topics. And there might be differences in approach. Certainly, I think it actually might not be productive to try to get everyone on the same page. And that's speaking as somebody who is currently directing an organization of over 50 constituent sub-organizations. And, and, you know, I think that full consensus all the time is actually actually not the most productive path forward, but at least having common understandings and speaking common languages, I think. Is and important. one of your members is actually the American Civil Liberties Union, if I'm right. Do they have a very different take on where AI is going or do they have particular concerns on this? Yeah, I can't speak for the ACLU, obviously, but they, like many other civil society organizations in the partnership, are really interested in better understanding the impact of these technologies on concerns that we have held as a society for a very long time, right? So there are open questions around whether AI is different in some way, whether it should be approached from a policy or legal or regulatory perspective differently than previous technologies that we've interfaced with and dealt with. 
and how we deal with those differences effectively. So I think their voice, among the many other voices that we have of nonprofit organizations involved in the partnership, which currently comprise 60% of our members, are among the most important because they bring to the table these points of conversation and multidisciplinary expertise, which need to be in confrontation and productive discussion with the sort of developer community on the other end. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Tara. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app. And if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.